Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. Let's look at a guy named Enoch. Um, Enoch, I love his story. We'll unpack it here in just a little bit, but I was thinking about him this week, which is good news since I'm talking to you. I was thinking about one of my relatives, my great-grandmother, and this is on my father's side. So my, my dad's mom's mom, my great-grandmother, uh, Sophie, and I remember hearing the story of Sophie some years ago, and they were talking about how it was that she passed away. Basically, if I remember right, 86 years of age, uh, she laid down and she went to sleep, and she never woke up again. And I've said this, Lord, if you're going to take me out, that's not a bad way, you know? That's just not a bad way to go. But when you think of Enoch or you think of Elijah, there actually is a better way to go, which is not to go at all, right? Not in the sense of dying. Enoch and Elijah are the two people that mentioned in Scripture that never saw death. Now, that would be pretty amazing, wouldn't it? If I were to say, take a poll of the group today and those online and say, all in favor of that for yourself, let's raise those hands, everybody's hand would probably go up. It reminds me of a person I visited with some years ago in the hospital, and they knew that their time was coming to an end. And they said, you know, I love the Lord. He's prepared me for my death. I'm not scared of death. I just don't want it to hurt. <laughs> you know? I was like, well, that's kind of an honest moment from somebody, right? A little bit about Enoch, though. The guy that, that never saw death. From the Bible, we know that Enoch was Adam's great, 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 great grandson, there's a little bit of genealogy for you. So he's connected uh, in a pretty powerful way to a person in the word. He's also Noah's great-grandfather. I mean, this guy had some people, right? Uh, he lived a holy and faithful life to the Lord. He also becomes the father of a guy named Methuselah. How many of you ever heard of Methuselah? You know, in scripture, it says, uh, you know, after the curse, it says, because of this, surely you will die. And you start turning the pages of scripture and it starts naming people. And it says, and then they, they have an age and then they died. And then they named somebody else and then they lived so many years and then they died. Just a piece of trivia, Methuselah lived 969 years and then he died. Good grief. I mean, what would that have even looked like? But he's the father of Methuselah, the longest living man. Throughout his three plus centuries on earth, talking about Enoch, he has numerous other offspring, no shocker. Uh, Enoch is also only one of two people, as I said, that was taken straight to heaven and who escaped death altogether. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, it talks about Enoch like this. In the passage that's about, a per, about the people that are great people of faith, it says, by faith Enoch was taken away. And so he did not experience death. He was not to be found because God took him away. For before he was taken away, he was approved as one who pleased God. Now, without faith, it is impossible to please God. You might want to underline that in your, in your word. Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists, that's first, and that he rewards those that seek him, that's second. And even in Genesis chapter 5, we get a little bit more of the framework of, of Enoch kind of cashed out for us as it starts in verse 21. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah who turns out to be 969. I know you all remember that when he dies. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. 
Then he was not there because God took him. So in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, it says, Enoch pleased God. And in Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 and 24, it shows you why he pleased God. It says that he walked with him. And because he walked with him, God was pleased. Walking with God. How many of you have given some thought to that lately? Walking with God. Uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it uses that theme of the word walk. Walk by the Spirit. And the result is you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, but you walk with the Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it's Paul says, Now you're with the, the Lord. Walk as children of light. There's this theme in Scripture, in other words, of walking with God. And if you think about it, talking about Enoch, uh, Enoch's faith started when he was 65 years old. I mean, why not? That's as good an age as any. Any 65-year-olds in here today? Be a good day for you to start walking with God. And it went for another 300 years to walk with God. When you think about it, to walk with God is to bring God into the steps that you take with each day of your life. It's to bring God to bear with each of the steps that you take with each of the days of your life. So to walk with God means that you're walking in step together. I give this, I give this illustration when I do marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling. You need to see your marriage as a three-legged race. And I don't know how many of you ever run one of those before, but basically your inner legs are tied together. You know what I'm talking about? The three-legged race? Now, what that would mean in your marriage is if one of you has fallen down, you're both probably fallen down. But if you're walking in step, you can really go. You need to see your relationship with God like that, that you are tied in the inner leg together and where God goes, you're going in step with God. It's a good way of capturing what Genesis 5 and Hebrews 11 are trying to say about this guy, that he walked so closely with God that God gave him a place of honor. See, a walk is a series of steps. We don't have to overthink this too much. What's a walk? It's a series of steps. It's not a step. It's not a step. It's a series of steps that you take. It's one after another. That's it. That's what a walk actually is. And every one of us in this place, you might be physically here, you might be, you might be online, you know what it means to take a walk or a step toward God. We've done it. But if you do this and you stop, you're not walking. You took a step. And that's it. Enoch is described differently. Did you catch it? Day by day, moment by moment, for 300 years, not a good Monday, by the way, but for 300 years, he walked in step with God. I think of the story of D.L. Moody. He was a famous pastor who had a man in his church in Chicago. He was always asking him to take on some new opportunity, some new activity, or some new responsibility. It's what people do. You need to be the one to take on the responsibility, right? It's what this guy was always doing to him. And the man would say, well, I don't know. So D.L. Moody would come up to him and say, you need to take on this responsibility. And they'd be like, I don't know. I mean, I've been aiming to do that. Now, how many of you have said something like that? I've been aiming to do that. And D.L. Moody finally replied to him one day. He said, sir, you've been aiming long enough. Now it's time for you just to fire. Do you know that spiritually speaking, it's true of a lot of us. It's true of a lot of us. Uh, we are perfectly content to talk about all of the things that we've been pondering about our spiritual life. 
and we just sit there and never pull the trigger with anything. Friends, that's not walking. That's not what it is. And that, that's why D.L. Moody said what he did to the gentleman. If this theme in Scripture about walking with God is so important, the question this morning is, is how do we do it? How do we walk in faith? And I want to give you a couple of things to think about. And here's the first. To walk with God means that you need the right direction. To walk with God means that you need the right direction for your life. It doesn't just say that you need to be walking somewhere. Like, I don't know where I'm going, but off I go. You need to actually have direction so that you're going in the right way. One of my favorite thinkers is C.S. Lewis. He said this. He said, we all want progress. But if you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. In that case, the man who turns back soonest is the most progressive. For some of you, it's not, are you moving? It's that you're moving in the wrong direction. You need to do an about face and start headed in the right way. See, because as Andy Stanley said, and he's absolutely right, direction, not intention, determines your destination. Did you catch that? Direction, not intention, determines destination. I mean, did you know that there are some roads that when you get on them, they're never going to take you certain places. They just won't. They weren't even designed to take you some places. And you know what sitting there thinking? I don't have a bad heart. Fair enough. But what road are you on with your life? And where did you think it was going to take you? What direction are you actually on? Your direction, not just your intention, will determine your destination. You can see why this is important. For your life, you need the right direction. And that means that we have to have a learner's posture, don't we? We have to sit at the feet of those who know how to do life well, which is why we take the word of God here so seriously. It is the direction for our life in godliness and holiness. How much time did you spend on the word this week? And it's not just that you need direction. You need focus on the direction that you're headed. You need focus. Uh, if you think about it, uh, you need to starve your distractions and you need to feed your focus. Did you catch that? You need to starve your distractions and feed your focus. Some of you wonder why it is that spiritually you're incredibly aimless. And the answer is, is because on the path that is straight, you're always looking to the right or to the left. And it's not just that you're looking that way, it's that you're going that way. And then you might happen to get back on the path. And then you kind of hang off to the left. What's the problem? The problem wasn't a lack of direction. The problem was a lack of focus on the direction that you've already been given. How aimless have you been this last week? Let me just throw a couple of things out there. What has your mental life been like this week? What are the kinds of things that you've said about people this week? Now, I'm only throwing a few things out, but every time that we start to follow that thing, we've looked to the left and we've looked to the right. We have lost and walked off of the path. Now, again, for some of you, you're saying they're going, it's not a matter of knowing the right thing. It's staying the course on the right thing that I know, which is why direction simply isn't enough. It's following the directions that you already have. You make it a part of your walk in the day. You start to hear gossip and you can say, you know what? That's just not something that I'm going to be about. Why? Because it's absolutely contrary to the word of God. It's harmful to those that we're gossiping about. It stops. I've walked off the path. And that's only one example. You could think of others. How selfish are you? When you, when you feed your selfishness, you have lost the path. Yeah, the whole thing about Christianity is, is that daily you take up your what? You take up your cross. You die to yourself. How many of you have been doing that this week? 
What did Monday look like this week? What did Tuesday look like this week? I can't answer that for you. The other thing that I'm also not doing is I'm not actually looking at any one of you and saying you didn't do it well. I'm just asking the questions that you need to be asking yourself. Are you lacking direction? Go get it. If you have the direction, are you embodying it? If not, get back on the path. This is what it means, and this is what Enoch was doing by walking with God. He took his precepts, and he put it to his feet. He put it to his life. That's what it meant for him to pursue God. The other thing is, is you need people on the same journey as you. It's not just that you need direction. It's not just that you need focus for where you're headed. You need people for the journey with you. You just do. Uh, Scripture speaks to this all the time, but I love some of the received wisdom that we have. Eagles don't take flight lessons from chickens, and that's true. Or you can't soar like an eagle if you surround yourself with turkeys, and that's true. But let me make it a little bit more serious here. Our journey in Christ was meant to be shared with others. Our journey in Jesus was meant to be shared with others. And if you just look in Scripture, you see this all the time. Paul had Barnabas. Paul had Luke. Paul, probably the greatest missionary in the history of the Christian church. He had his help. He had his help. David had Jonathan. I could name more, but you at least get the idea. The question is, is who's your Barnabas? Who's your Luke? Who's your Jonathan? We all absolutely need it. All of us. Now that said, it's so that we can be people of faith like Enoch was a man of faith. That's why we're even talking about this this morning. Faith in Hebrews 5, 6, it says you can't please God without it because faith means to have trust or confidence in. Do you have trust or confidence in God? If not, you're not pleasing Him. We have faith in all kinds of things. Think about it. You have faith in the chair that you're sitting in right now, right? You have faith when you leave this place. You have faith that your car is going to start. Faith and relationships are a little bit more difficult than that, though, aren't they? Faith and relationships are a little bit more difficult, and let's face it, they're messier. They just are. You have faith, meaning literally you have trust or confidence that your friend will be there for you when things go wrong or right, but you have trust or confidence that they're going to be there for you. Having faith in God is even trickier, though, when you think about it because it usually involves trust or confidence in a lot of things that you cannot see, specifically about the future, specifically about the future. And there's an expectation that we have on our part from God for you, for you to act even though you don't have all the information at times. God gives you a bit and then says, go. And you're like, well, I don't know. I like kind of all that spelled out first and then, you know, we'll get together and pray about it. It's kind of how we typically work. All the information and then I'll consider the possibility. But that's not trust or confidence. See, as Hebrews is trying to say, it's not just that you believe that God is real even though you have to. But the demons believe, and they shudder. It's not just that. That when it comes to faith, that's a part of it, but it's that you also trust that God rewards those that pursue Him. Pursue Him. Uh, I, can, I can think back to a lot of things I did to get Wendy to marry me. I can think of a lot of things I did. We lived almost an hour apart from each other when I was up in Dallas. I was still a seminary student, which meant I had millions of dollars of extra cash on the side. 
She lived about an hour away from me. And I remember it just kind of hit me. I was sitting there studying. And uh, my professors are thrilled to hear that. So I was sitting there studying. And I just thought, you know what? I just need to do something for her today. And so I got dressed up. I went and got a dozen roses. I drove one hour to see her. When I got there, as it turns out, she was working out with her roommates. She was sweaty and gross. <laughs> and there I was dressed up, right? And she came walking out and I had, I had the flowers. And I said, you know, I'm not here to take up a lot of your time. In fact, I have a lot of work I have to do. I just had to see you today. And I wanted to do, thank you so much. I'm getting some awes, you know. <laughs> Feel like I did it right that day. That's pursuing. That's pursuing. And when you think about John 3.16, for God so loved the world, so loved the world, he's pursuing you. That's what love does. Love pursues. And if you can understand what I'm saying, which is a little bit of something that I did for what would soon to be my wife, you know, over 20 years ago, you can get a flavor of what I'm talking about that your relationship with Jesus should be every day like it was for Enoch. You walk with God. It's the essence of a relationship. Now, walking with God is tricky, and I want to say this specifically to younger people that are here, because walking with God means you're usually walking against the world. It's what it means. You're walking with God means that you're usually having to walk against the world, and it's usually, that comes with a cost. It just does. And Jude, one of the other texts in the Bible that talks about Enoch, gives a description of what his life was like. And let me ask you how easy this would be. In Jude 14 and 15, it says, It was about these that Enoch and the seventh generation from Adam prophesied, people of his day, Look, the Lord comes with ten, tens of thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly concerning all the ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and concerning all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. That's what he was having to do. How easy is that? It comes at a cost. Scripture's, scripture's pointing this out from the beginning to the end. But for Enoch to walk with God meant that he was going to be that kind of a man. He was just going to be different, and he saw that it was worth it. He saw that it was worth it. He didn't cave to it. He spoke against the corruption of his day, and God honored him for his obedience, even though I guarantee you everybody around him didn't. Didn't. Whose honor matters more to you? I mentioned C.S. Lewis earlier. Did you know C.S. Lewis wasn't always a Christian? He just wasn't. Uh, one of his friends is, was J.R.R. Tolkien. In fact, they were very close friends. Uh, Lewis and Tolkien uh, had a group that used to meet at the Eagle and the Child, and they were called the Inklings. And the Inklings were basically a brain trust is what they were. You had some of the top scholars in the world literally sitting there drinking a pint and talking about a number of things, issues of the day. You saw C.S. Lewis eventually uh, uh, do Mere Christianity, which came out in a time over the radio during World War II where he was speaking out against the atrocities that were happening in the world. It eventually became the book, Mere Christianity, which is one of my top 10 books that I've ever read. Lewis not always a Christian. J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame is the guy that was instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to Jesus. 
And for those of you that don't know this, C.S. Lewis, once he comes to Jesus, he then writes this thing out called the Chronicles of Narnia. How many of you have ever read the Chronicles of Narnia? Well, it's been assigned, all right? So you have to go do it. C.S. Lewis said that this is an allegory for Jesus. I love the story though, because before he becomes to Jesus, and I just wanted to share this with you this morning, Lewis and Tolkien both knew and they loved mythology. In fact, Lewis was one of the top medieval scholars in the world at that time. They loved mythology. They loved the myths of ancient cultures. They knew the old stories of the Greeks and the Romans, and they knew and loved the stories of the Norse gods as well. In his autobiographical memoir, this is Lewis, it's called Surprised by Joy, Lewis recalled uh, how his heart had been broken when he read those lines from the Norse ballads and even from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. I heard a voice cry, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. Now I know you're wondering who Balder is. Balder is a Norse god. He was the son of Odin. By the way, Thor is his brother. So for those of you that are going to watch Marvel, there you go. Thor is his brother. Um, his, his mom wanted to protect him from every possible harm. And so she goes to research everything out and then to insulate him from the possible harms of the world. And they do this test. They do this test for Balder. You know, the harms of, of weapons. And so they get this group together. And Balder is standing there. And they're literally throwing like knives and things. Out, and nothing is harming this guy. But there's this other character named Loki and for those of you that do watch Marvel, you're probably hearing Thor's voice right now, Loki, right? There's Loki. Now, Loki is always a mischievous kind of character in the Norse literature. He's always causing problems. He's disruptive. Marvel kept that part, right? Now, he's disruptive, and he's looking to have this banquet, and there's Balder, and everybody's like, we love him so much. Everybody loved Balder. Loki, nah, he didn't like it. So he thinks, well, what is it that they didn't ever research out to protect this guy from? Because it's like axes aren't hurting him anymore. What was it? What was it? And so as the crowd is gathered together, he finds out that one of the things that they had never looked into, strangely enough, was mistletoe. I know we're not far from Christmas, and so it just gives us a feel right now, right? But you know, it didn't give Balder a good feel. Because what Loki does is there was a gentleman that was in the crowd that could not see and so he wasn't able to participate in all the things like where he's throw, they're throwing knives and whatnot at him. And so Loki goes up and he says, here, why don't you get to participate? I'll help you out and just kind of throw this at him. And he's like, all right, I actually get to be a part. And so what they do is they take, they take the mistletoe stem and they throw it and actually punctures Balder and he dies. And C.S. Lewis is writing, he's saying, I remember this moment in a story that just so broke me, and it was the death of Balder. But the question became, why, why did that matter to Lewis? Here's what he said. Why should this 19th century poem about a fictional character move me so much? And what was the meaning of it? And Tolkien ends up saying, we need to have a conversation about it. Because for him, although for him it was no longer just an idea, you could see something was wakening up in C.S. Lewis. And what Tolkien said was he knew that all of these other ancient and beautiful stories were echoes of something that was larger and true. They were signs that the human race knew of another world that had once existed and would exist again, even now existed in another realm, outside of time. And he begins this conversation with his atheist friend, C.S. Lewis. He says, consider the possibility 
and off they go in a conversation. And so that night on a dark wooden path with his friend Jack, which is what all the friends of C.S. Lewis called him and why I named my last dog Jack, on a dark wooden path with his friend Jack, he asked the question that would change Jack's life. He asked Jack to consider whether it was possible that one time a story like this had actually collided with history. Whether one time eternity may be broke into time. And Tolkien suggested that it had. That the story of the God who died and came to life was an echo of a greater story. In fact, as he told him, it's the greatest story that has ever been told. And that one time in history, the eternal story had bloomed into reality, had broken through into history, and had broken into time as a crocus, he said, breaks through snow. And you're wondering what that is. You need to be thinking like a green plant shoot breaking up through the snow. That God had done that. He said, and as a result, it has changed everything forever. It had brought, it had brought spring from winter, had brought eternity into time itself. And Lewis looks at his friend Tolkien and he says, I've never considered whether or not it was actually true. And so he set out. And by the time that he was done, one of the top medieval scholars of his time, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. And the world has never been the same since. Because you think of all of the people that have come to Jesus because of the Chronicles of Narnia, the great story of Aslan. Tolkien pressed him to consider it, and he said he would, and it changed his life. C.S. Lewis would later, like, later write these words. He said, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there is such a thing as food. Uh, a duckling wants to swim. Well, there is such a thing as water. But here's what he said. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is I was made for another world. And he gave himself to Christ. Friends, you were made for another world. And we live kind of with this tension, especially for those of you that gave your life to Jesus some years ago, of what it is to live in this world and to also have eternity already set in your heart. Kind of like my Jewish friends who go to the Wailing Wall and you see them rocking back and forth. The whole thing is a symbol of that difficulty. I live in two worlds, the spiritual and the physical, and it's a struggle. But we have witnessed by the word of God from, from Hebrews 11 and from Genesis 5 and from the book of Jude that there is a man named Enoch that shows you it can be done. So this morning, if you're a believer, I'm not asking you this question. I'm not asking you, have you taken a step with God? I'm asking you a deeper question that we saw from the life of Enoch. Are you walking with him? Are you walking with him? And if not, today should be the day where you say, I begin the journey forward, step by step, day by day, like Enoch before me. Or maybe you came in here this morning and you have never given your life to Christ. Let me, let me encourage you this. Take it on C.S. Lewis's witness. It is worth it. It is worth it because it is true and it has changed everything, everything. Here's what we believe, very simply. We believe that the wages of sin is death, but we believe that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, his son.
That's for all of us. The question this morning is, are we going to receive it? We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.